Particularly, of course, the choir didn't have an opportunity to pick one on the way in, so don't forget, choir, to get your welcome chocolate on the way out. As a travelling speaker, it's been my privilege to receive hospitality from Christians in many different countries. These brothers and sisters in Christ have welcomed me into their homes, fed me at their tables with a variety of interesting foodstuffs, and have allowed me to sleep on their spare beds. The real privilege, though, in receiving this hospitality has been the discovery of a, a shared spiritual fellowship uh, that's the same in uh, Norway or Romania uh, as it is in the home counties. Christians travelling by the far slower methods of the first century had an even greater need for hospitality. Since the inns of that day uh, were expensive, as well as being centres for pagan practices and uh, criminal activities. Private hospitality was a key civic and religious virtue of ancient and classical times. Consider, for example, this prayer from the Egyptian Papyrus of Ani, dating from the 13th century BC. I have propitiated the God by doing his will. I have given bread to the hungry man and water to him that was athirst and apparel to the naked man. Jesus echoes this tradition via Isaiah 58.7 when he discusses the hospitable behaviour of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, you look after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. The ancient Greek epic poems of Homer contain some 18 hospitality scenes. Typical of these is the following excerpt from the Odyssey, uh, where Telemachus welcomes the goddess Athena, who is at this point disguised as a mortal. He saw Athena and went straight to the forecourt. The heart of him scandalised that a guest should still be standing at the doors. He stood beside her and took her by the right hand, relieved her of the bronze spear and spoke to her and addressed her in winged words. Welcome, stranger. You shall be entertained as a guest among us. Afterwards, when you have tasted dinner, you shall tell us what your need is. Well, since travellers wouldn't wander away from home into the dangers of the world without good cause, it was assumed that they were on some important mission. And it's also typical of Homeric hospitality scenes that the guest isn't asked who they are or what their mission is before they've received shelter and a meal. This custom ensures that the hospitality given was based on need rather than on social status. Since hosts had no way of knowing who their visitors were, they were forced to treat every visitor as if they were a god. 
The theologian F.F. Bruce explains that among the Greeks, strangers were under the special protection of Zeus. On occasion, Zeus, or one of the other gods, was believed to have assumed a disguise as a wayfarer and brought great blessing to those who treated him hospitably. Among the Jews, Abraham was regarded as outstanding for his hospitality, and a true son of Abraham must be hospitable too. Of course, Abraham famously received three strangers who turned out to be angels in Genesis 18. And other examples of entertaining angels unawares feature in the histories of Lot in Genesis 19, of Gideon in Judges 6, and Samson's parents in Judges 13. Such angelic visitations are obviously infrequent occurrences, but the possibility of entertaining angels is not put forward as a reason for practicing hospitality, but as a possible result. As theologian Donald Guthrie observes, the moral point of referencing these incidents is not it is that it is better to assume that guests are angels and to act accordingly rather than to risk treating worthy people unworthily. So hospitality is a virtue commanded throughout the Bible. In Exodus, God tells Israel, do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner, that is, a stranger or a guest. For you were foreigners in Egypt. In Leviticus, God says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. In Deuteronomy, God reminds Israel that he loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. And Jesus not only talked about hospitality, he embodied hospitality by playing host and washing his disciples' feet. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, his disciples. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. It's in John 13. Now the Apostle Peter, who famously resisted Jesus' foot washing at first, obviously got Jesus' point and recommended that his readers, quote, practice hospitality ungrudgingly to one another, 1 Peter 4.9. The Apostle Paul lists hospitality as a quality of those suited for eldership in 1 Timothy and in Titus. He expects that an elder of the church, who is meant to be an example for others, should show love to strangers, as a contrast to leaders who expect to be waited upon hand and foot. And of course, we are all examples to one another of Christ. Uh, we shouldn't leave it to our Bible study leaders or uh, elders uh, or friends with food processors to do the job. Hence, Paul told the church in Rome that they should always be eager to practice 
hospitality, Romans 12, 13. And having introduced the theme of brotherly love, the author of Hebrews begins to unpack his theme by encouraging readers, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, some translations of this verse substitute the term entertaining for showing hospitality, entertaining angels unawares. But I think this word choice in today's culture has some un unhelpful connotations, uh, triggering what Catherine Weston calls uh, middle-class entertainment anxiety. I haven't cleaned the sitting room. What food will I serve? The place settings don't match. As Tara Singh comments, there is an underlying assumption here that hospitality involves mouth-watering three-course home-cooked meals served around a beautifully laid dining table in a pristine living room decorated to look like the latest IKEA catalogue. But the Bible, when it describes true hospitality, makes no mention of appetizers or cake forks or Allen keys. The Greek word being translated as entertain or show hospitality is philo-xenos, philo-xenos. It literally means a love of strangers. This xenophilia is the opposite of xenophobia, which is perhaps a word we're more familiar with, being xenophobic, uh, afraid of, not hospitable towards strangers and foreigners. So it's not about winning an episode of Come Dine With Me. It's about the practical demonstration of love for people that you don't know. Where entertaining seeks to impress, hospitality seeks to bless. According to Donald Guthrie, it's clear that something more than mere entertaining of friends and acquaintances is in mind here. It is, in fact, a Christian social service which is envisioned. Melissa Kruger notes that at the heart of biblical hospitality is a humble willingness to serve others. It's not intended to show off what we have, but to demonstrate whom we follow. So while a good meal and an Ikea dining table may help you to be hospitable, these things are not what hospitality is about. Indeed, biblical examples of hospitality take a wide variety of forms. The humble and gracious reception of travellers into one's home for food and lodging and protection. Permitting uh, the alienated person uh, to harvest the corners of one's fields, clothing the naked, tithing food to the needy, and including the alien in religious celebrations. Note that hospitality, hospitality can mean an outward action as well as a sort of inward reception. In either case, hospitality gives a practical demonstration of love for the needs of strangers. Now, while the Old Testament's concept of hospitality, as we've seen, was closely tied to Israel's uh, existence as refugees, experiencing God's provision in the wilderness, this concept is given an even deeper significance in the New Testament. Uh, 
as we see God's welcome of alienated sinners at the foot of the cross. Biblical hospitality is not just an injunction. It's the very heart of the gospel. We were the strangers whom Christ welcomed. Have a look at Ephesians 2.13. In the Lord's Supper, we look back to the Last Supper and forward to God's great banqueting table where we will one day be welcomed in heaven. In a profound way, the shared meal of simple hospitality is thus an expression of the deepest truths about the kingdom of God. And though not the only form of hospitality, sharing a meal has deep symbolic significance. Particularly in the ancient world, to share food with someone was to share life with them. Jesus' meals with tax collectors and sinners, the Lord's Supper, Jesus' post-resurrection meals with the disciple, uh, Peter's meal with Gentiles in Acts, the common meal of the early Christians, all communicated a powerful message of intimacy and unity. While the liturgy of a church service teaches us about the Christian story, it also embodies that story. God gathers people for a great banquet at which he presides, gives us a word, offers us the fruit of his labour of love. And from there, God sends us out into the world to participate in the great gathering work. By participating in the liturgy of a service, we're doing more than attending a service, going to church. We're entering into a story a story in which we have a role. We are the people who have indeed been gathered. We are the people who share in God's very life. We are the people sent forth to proclaim God's story and to invite others into that grand story. Of course, care should be exercised with strangers to guard against criminal intent or exploitation. It's interesting to note that there was an early Christian commentary called the Didache, which limited uh, visits in people's houses from fellow Christians on, uh, on mission uh, to a one-day stay, or two, if necessary. But if a Christian had stayed three days, he was regarded as a false prophet. <laughs> Moreover, in 2 John, the apostle warns readers not to receive into the house or welcome anyone who purports to be a Christian preacher but doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. For to welcome them is to participate in the evil deeds of such a person. That said, we do well to contemplate the fact that the primary aim of the Christian life is not to feel safe but to be faithful. A person well practiced in Christian hospitality chooses love over fear, trust over suspicion, and even risk over security. Hospitality is the vocation of every Christian because it's through hospitality that we offer the most compelling witness of who God is, we, who we are called to be in his name, and what the world through God's grace and welcome can become. Culture, you may have noticed, has changed somewhat since the first century. The hospitality industry 
makes accommodation away from home much more affordable and safe. We have a social safety net that just didn't exist in the first century. But while our opportunities for practicing hospitality may differ to that of the original readers of Hebrews, the need for hospitality certainly endures. Let me just highlight a few situations in which our hospitality can make a real difference in people's lives today. Our church is privileged to exist in the midst of Southampton University community. In a recent poll of almost 38,000 UK students, one third of students reported being lonely, either often or all the time. Think what it can mean to a student to be invited to Sunday lunch or to come on a country walk with your family. Think of that as the students arrive, particularly the freshers, uh, in the new university year. And over 30% of the Southampton University student body, 30% are international students. Now, Friends International run uh, a, what they call a local link scheme through their website, and I quote, This is a wonderful opportunity for the international students to meet local people and to learn about life and customs in England. For many of the international students, they tell us that this is one of the highlights of their time here, as it can be hard for them to meet people who are not students or on their course. However, the website also notes, we don't have enough hosts to meet demand. According to the United Nations, an unprecedented 70.8 million people around the world have been forced from home by conflict and persecution at the end of 2018. Among them are nearly 30 million refugees, over half of whom are under the age of 18. Now, of course, many charities such as Christian Aid or Samaritan's Purse or Tear Fund, and we could list many others, would very much value your support, our support, for their work with these vulnerable people. There's a new Alpha course starting up in January. Why not volunteer as a host or to help with catering? Highfield Church has a dedicated welcome and hospitality team. They were the folks giving you the chocolates as they came in. Uh, they would value more volunteers to help with that or with the, the coffees at the end and so forth. So in closing, let's refocus on the fact that our desire to give hospitality in its many forms to others, that should grow out of our understanding of the hospitality given to us by God in Jesus. For when we were enemies and strangers to him, he invited us into his father's house and prepared a room for us. Jesus did more than just serve us a meal or wash our feet. He loved us enough to serve us with his entire life. And as people who've been served by the greatest of kings, how can we do anything else but serve others in his name? And all the people said, Amen. Amen.